0: These are the words of Paul, but more importantly, the words of God. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says... I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that we come now to your word, and we thank you that you speak still. What we hold in our hands is not just a, a random collection of men's thoughts from 2,000 years ago, but it's the very word of God to your people both then and now, and we pray that you would speak. We pray that you would hear, uh, that we would hear your voice, and we pray that by your spirit you would work the words of this passage into our hearts so that there might be increased unity among us as a church. And among all those brothers and sisters in Christ across this city and this nation. And we pray that for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did you ever hear the joke about uh, the man who was stuck on, a, on an isolated island? You've got to think about uh, Tom Hanks in the film The Castaway. Uh, and he's, he, you know, he, he, he lands, a he, he plane crash, and he ends up on this island, and he's all alone, and he's there for many, many, many years. Uh, and so he, he begins to try and do whatever he can to make himself shelter and to forage for food so that he can survive until he's rescued. Uh, and eventually, this man uh, is discovered on this island. Uh, a, a ship passes by, and then a helicopter finally comes over and lands with a team of rescuers, and the team of rescuers rescue this man who's been on his own for many years Uh, before they get back onto the helicopter the man decides to give them a tour of the island and so he leads them around and shows them different parts of the island this is the beach this is you know where I went for food this is the forest and then they say well what's that hut there and he says oh that's where I lived and they say oh that's wonderful and they say "Well, well what's that hut there and he said oh that's the church I built with my own hands And they said, oh, that's fantastic. And they walked a little bit further around the corner and there was another hut on the side. Uh, And one of the rescuers turned to the man and he said, well, what's that hut there? And the rescuer said, oh, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) And we laugh because it's quite funny. But the reality of church divisions and splits uh, is not funny. Uh, Some of us have lived through church splits. Some of us have just heard stories. And usually their stories of church splits and divisions amongst God's people are painful and sorrowful um, and difficult. Usually they're not surprising because the church is made up of sinners. But they are nonetheless painful. Now, Paul tells us in verse 11, if you look, that a lady called Chloe, who was... Presumably some kind of reliable and trustworthy uh, woman who was held in high regard and carried weight with the Corinthians. Uh, Perhaps she was a business owner in Corinth. As we talked about last week, it is a a major trade area. So maybe she's a renowned businesswoman. And she sends her people to Paul in Ephesus uh, with a report that toxic divisions have erupted in this young church. And so Paul now is going to set to work. Last week we looked at the opening nine verses where he, um, <coughs> excuse me, he celebrates the gospel in the lives of the Corinthians and he talks about how they've been called by God, how they've been blessed by the grace of God, and how they're being kept for that future day by the grace of God. But now here he begins from verse ten to apply the gospel. To this church, in a very specific situation, in their dysfunctional relationships and in their divisions that are that are plaguing this messy church, and the first thing that we we really see in this uh, these few verses is the the problem of disunity. And that's in verses eleven and twelve. The problem of disunity. In verse nine, as we finished last week, he says, "God is faithful." And he's called you into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we read verses 11 and 12, the, the sort of the toxic divisions that they describe are so stark and so sad against the backdrop of they've been called into fellowship with Jesus. And by implication into fellowship with one another. And so the toxic divisions are stark. It appears as we read in verses 11 and 12 that there are internal squabbles going on on as uh, competing cliques have formed in the church and they're sort of trampling on one another and just trying to scramble to the position of power and prominence within the church. (coughs) Excuse me. And Paul uh, highlights for us that these are not theological divisions. These are not divisions that have come about because different groups in the church are believing different things, but they're very much driven by personality divisions that people are quarreling over who their favourite leader was in the church. And what has happened is that the, the Corinthian church has adopted some cultural values that were rife in Corinth that were placing too much stock in human leaders. And they were championing their favourites as the most important and the most gifted and the most worthy of being followed. But actually what you see in verse 12 is that these, these championing of leaders is rooted in eye disease, Look at the way Paul writes, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Jesus. It's rooted in an eye disease. What had happened is these, the, the church in Corinth had taken their eyes off of Jesus and put them on human leaders and these four statements in verse 12 <coughs> are thought to be sort of slogans that might be chanted at rallies. So you, you know how you watch Donald Trump on the TV and he's, you know, his supporters are holding up signs that say, make America great again and put on your red hat and those kind of things. These are the kind of things that the, the different cliques were saying. So they would say, I'm of Paul. I'm of Paul. Of course we want to follow Paul. He was the founder and the father of our church. He's the most important figure. So we follow Paul. And then there was another group that was saying, oh no, we follow Apollos. Now Apollos was a guy who had followed uh, Paul into Corinth, so Paul had left, and uh, Apollos had arrived, and he was from Alexandria Alexandria in Egypt, which was one of the preeminent university cities of the ancient Mediterranean, and he was a man well-versed in education, and he was uh, eloquent in speaking, and actually it records in Acts 18 that Apollos came and he really helped people in their faith towards Jesus. And so maybe those people are saying, yeah, Paul's okay, but Apollos is our man. Then there's another group that are saying, <coughs> excuse me, I'm of Peter, or I'm of Cephas. And they might be standing up there and they just say, Peter, you know, the, the apostle, the, the rock upon whom Jesus said he would build this church, we're following Peter. And then there was this kind of, superior, intimidating, self-righteous group that sounded pious but were still divisive and they were saying, oh no, we follow Jesus. We don't need any human leaders because we just have the experience of Jesus and that's all we need. But actually, although it sounds correct, they were still being divided. They were still being divisive. And so these divisions that in the Corinthian church were all style over substance. Who had the most pizzazz? Who was the best speaker? Who gave the best illustrations? Who kept to time? All right, nobody's important. <laughs> Great, nobody's worried about that. Uh, you know, who was the best dressed? Who had the best hair? Who had the best stuff going on? Ancient historians spoke of the Corinthians in general across the city. They described them as ivy. That they would seek height and prominence by winding themselves around the prominent figure or a or an important patron so that they could rise to the top in the city. And that had seeped into the church. And so the church was saying, well, the more noble or the more elite or the more wealthy or the more famous person that I can associate with, the better it will reflect on me. The more. Elevated and honoured and praiseworthy, I will be because I'm connected to Paul or Apollos or Peter or Jesus. They were looking for someone's coattails to hang on to. (coughs) They were looking for uh, someone who would be their saviour. Now, we might look on and think, well, that's ridiculous. What a bunch of idiots. But we do this too. How many of us like to drop a name? Boom. You know, oh, yeah, when I met John Piper, boom. Yeah. And he said that he had read my books. Or, oh, yeah, I... Well, we don't, we don't just do this with religious leaders. We do this with all sorts of... I, uh, forgive me if this is you. I went to university in Cambridge or Oxford or Edinburgh or King's College... Or, I work for Rolls-Royce or NASA or the government. We all name drop in order to try and help create some kind of clout and respect with other people. We all want to identify ourselves with someone or something, whether it be an institution or a celebrity or a political party or a diet or a method of parenting, or a method of cleaning your house, or Brexit, or whatever it might be, so that we can be like Ivy and sort of gain prominence and power amongst our friends. <clears throat> and when that happens, we suffer from eye disease too. We've taken our eyes off of Jesus As the central and unifying idea of the Christian life and we have instead placed our hope and our confidence in ideologies or preferences or opinions that actually when we discover that someone else doesn't think the same as us they can cause friction and feuds and then eventually factions and that's what was happening here. What began as a unifying kind of central idea wasn't Apollos really helpful when he explained the gospel. I found his teaching really useful. What began as a unifying power amongst certain people had turned into discord and dissonance and division. And as the Corinthian church was pulled in different directions, it threatened to rip the body apart and dismember itself. And broken relationships and fellowship and gospel witness was hindered. Now, unity is something that crops up in the New Testament all of the time. You bump into it all over the place, in all, most of Paul's letters, lots and lots. Uh, and he describes it in many different ways, in bower, uh, biting and devouring and destroying one another, in, uh, in doing the devil's work, those kind of things. Because uh, uh, and disunity is so dangerous to the church, and that's why Paul is constantly... Attacking it and calling people to set aside your differences and reach peace and find the gospel at work in our relationships. Because if we are divided as a church, we become useless. Divisions lead to compromises in theology, in maturity, in mission, in worship, in the witness of the church. And divided churches are some of the saddest places on the planet. You know, what hope is there for a lost world if the Christians can't get along? So we need to ask ourselves the question of where might divisions and disunity exist among us? we just got to ask ourselves the question. We might come back and find, actually, at this point in time, we're okay. But we should be guarded because it's very easy to say, oh, I'm of Nathan. Or I'm of Matt. Or I'm of Peter. Or I'm of John Piper. Or I'm of so-and-so. Or it might be that you think a particular grouping is what you need to be a part of. So, oh, I'm part of the group that's been in the church the longest. We don't let anybody else in. Or I'm in the church of people who, uh, or the group who parent like this. We just let our kids do X, Y, and Z. Or we don't let them do X, Y, and Z. So easily, we can be divided. Our home group's better than your home group. Our snacks are better than your snacks. My teaching in kids' club, in the children's ministry, is better than your teaching in the children's ministry. I prefer it when Tim leads worship to when JD does it. We hope Nathan never does it again. (laughs) And I hope that too. We can all find places where we can become disunited. And Paul warns us of the problem, but... He then doesn't just leave it there. He appeals for unity. That's the second thing that we see. And this is verse 10, uh, the appeal for unity. And the first thing you should notice as you re- read verse 10 is Paul's tone. Read Paul's tone. Despite his apostolic authority and despite the toxicity of what was happening in the church, he does not come with a kind of a lordly demand He doesn't come like a tyrant, ready to bludgeon and crush people to do what he says. He's not heavy-handed and burdensome. Stop it! Let's sort this out. Now his tone is like one of a father. It's strong, but it's tender. And if you notice in verse 10, it's grounded on the fellowship of God's grace that has already created unity among the people. It's grounded on verse 9. And then he says, I appeal to you. Brothers and sisters. Twice, in fact, actually in verse 10 and then again in verse 11, he calls them brothers and sisters. Because he wants to remind them of the family connections and relationships that they share. Oh, come on, brothers. Come on, sisters. Let's not be divided We're family. God is our father. Jesus is our brother. We're one together. He'll go on later in chapter 12 to talk about one body and one spirit. Though we are many, we are one. Therefore, let's not give way to discord and quarreling and strife and personal agendas and personal ambition. Instead, let's work for harmony and peace and unity. And unity is so important that he actually then calls on the name of Jesus, if you notice. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not some kind of like... Uh, I know what will create unity. I'll just drop a magic word into it. Hey, you know, abracadabra. Oh, let's just say Jesus. Yeah, he'll do it. No, he's he's very specific in quoting and calling upon the name of Jesus. And I think maybe for two or three reasons, maybe he's trying to remind them of the example of Jesus, the meekness and the gentleness that Jesus used in dealing with difficult people. How he... Has loved the Corinthians with a self giving, sacrificial, costly love. Maybe he's trying to remind them that it is the grace of Jesus that has forgiven them and brought them together into God's family. Maybe he's just trying to recall to mind and and help them remember the teaching of Jesus and the desires of Jesus so that when Jesus walked on this planet, he said stuff like John 13 you know, a new commandment I give you love one another. Love one another for this by men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Or John 17 on the night before Jesus was crucified when he prayed his high priestly prayer in verses 20 to 23. He says this, I do not ask only for these 12, the original apostles, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. And that's us. That they may be one. One. Just as you and I, Father, are one, I in you and you in me, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in, their, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. His tone is gentle. You know, what is going to get people's divisions up? What's going to ratchet up the tension more than just vicious, vitriolic attack? But Paul's tone is gentle. Brothers and sisters, by the name of Jesus, let's not be divided. But then look at the substance as well of his tone. He says three things. He says, I would that you would agree. Literally, that means be of the same, so say the same thing. That's what it means. I would that you would say the same things. Now, that's not that everybody in the church is just to be a yes man or a yes woman. It's not a call to uniformity. It's not a call to check your brain at the door and just come in and do everything that we tell you to do. That's nonsense. That is not right. Neither is it a call to just kind of dull unison or, you know, Christian clones that all speak the same and dress the same and wear the same things. Paul is not trying to extinguish diversity or differences here. This is not, uh, you know, the spiritual Borg like in Star Trek, you know, the Borg, this kind of uh, artificial artificial intelligence aliens who kind of tried to assimilate everybody into the collective. And as you were assimilated into the collective, you, you know, you, you lost all of your individualism. That's not what Paul is saying here. He wants us to be united like a choir is united. Different parts and different voices, but they're all singing from the same song sheet. They're all making harmonious music together. That's what he wants. Agreement, say the same things. Let's all sing from the same sheet. About the important things, because look at what he goes on to say. Let there be no divisions. But unity, be united in the same mind and judgment. And that word united there speaks of uh, resetting broken bones. Let's be of the same mind and judgment. Let's reset ourselves. Let's mend ourselves. Let's let the gospel inform and transform our relationships. Let's be so tightly knitted together together. That there's no chinks or gaps in our relationships together. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying or what Paul is saying. This is not that you can never raise a concern. This is not that you can never raise a critique. This is not that you could never raise an observation or an issue. This is not some three line whip to say Christians just must agree about everything and disagreement is wrong. No, this is Paul saying let there be genuine unity among you on the important things, on the things that are central to the Christian faith. The word mind and judgment there are words to do with um, truth. Mind and judgment, they're words to do with truth. And so when Paul says, let be this, be united in the same mind and judgment, he's basically saying, let it be united around the same truths. Around the same truth. Not a spin-doctored external front, a veneer that's as thin as a tissue, like political parties. No, let there be a deep and genuine unity on matters of first importance, that... God's people come together and they think the same things about God, they think the same things about Jesus, they think the same things about his word, they think the same things about the gospel, consequently they think the same things about themselves and they think the same things about the church and in doing so they are, uh, as they're united around matters of first importance, we're prepared to lay aside those things that are of secondary importance for the greater good of the mission of the church and the witness of Christ. So Paul's appeal and his substance is, don't let there be divisions. Think the same things about those things that are most important. Christ and his gospel. And then strive to maintain that unity. Strive to maintain the unity that Jesus creates. And don't let anything divide the church. So how do we do that? How do we maintain the unity? that Christ has created amongst his people well that's the third thing the pathway to unity the pathway to unity this is verse 13 Paul presents a pathway by reminding them of some of the foundational gospel truths that uh, the church was planted and established on and these gospel truths that he's going to remind them of, of challenge the the kind of the lunacy Of the idea of championing and exalting human leaders one over another. And he lays out this pathway in a very unusual way because he asks three rhetorical questions. The first rhetorical question is found at the beginning of verse 13 and he says, is Christ divided? So remember we've got these four groups. I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. And Paul comes along and says, listen, you all claim to have some kind of monopoly on the truth. But can Jesus be divided? Can he be parceled up and you've got a little bit of Jesus there and you've got a little bit of Jesus there and then you've got a little bit of Jesus here and you've got a little bit of Jesus over there? Is that possible? Well, that hopefully you would go, no, that's not possible. It's not possible for Jesus to be divided. You either have all of Jesus or nothing of Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, um, there's an there's a incident in, one of the, in the gospel where the Jewish religious leaders are accusing Jesus of being possessed by a demon because he's casting out demons from other people. And so one of the Jewish leaders says, it's by the prince of, uh, uh, it's by the prince of demons, Beelzebub, that he's casting out these demons. And Jesus turns around to them and rebukes him and he says, listen, that's crazy because can a kingdom be divided against itself? Can Satan cast out Satan? Surely if a house divided against itself, it can't stand. Really, that's what Paul's argument here is. It's the same word, divided, in both Mark 3 and in 1 Corinthians 1. Can Jesus be divided? Can his kingdom be divided one against another? No. For if that were to happen, his kingdom could not stand. Can Jesus be divided and yet you still receive the fullness of all that he offers? No. Because if you say you've got Jesus, but they say they've got Jesus and they say they've got Jesus. Well, who do you believe? Where do you go? If you get what they've got, you miss out on the other two. Can Christ be divided? No. And if Christ can't be divided, then for the church to be divided, it's shockingly unlike Jesus. How many of us invited friends over to dinner and said, Oh, come for dinner on Friday night, but could you leave your left leg in the car? Because we've got no room for them. That's crazy, isn't it? Nobody. Yeah, you know, we were having a conversation this morning. I can't remember what it was about, but something, what were we talking about? And I said, That's as crazy as saying, oh, I really like your left arm, but I'm not so keen on your right arm. I really like you, yeah, except for you've got weird ankles so leave them if a body is divided it's it's usually damaged it's usually useless sometimes it's dead that's where they hung drew and quartered people in years gone by it's either all of jesus or none of jesus And Jesus died to make us one with himself and one with each other. And churches are local expressions of the body of Christ that God has sovereignly put together. And Paul wants us to protect and to preserve the unity of the church. If I say it like this, if divisions arise, that's almost like self-harm. That's what... Paul is saying can Christ be divided he can't be and the pathway to unity is to remember the wholeness of Jesus and to fix our eyes upon him second rhetorical question is this was Christ uh, sorry was Paul crucified for you again hopefully you would say no no it wasn't it wasn't Paul who was on a cross that's crazy Paul Apollos Peter No human being ever died to win eternal salvation for anybody else. And to think that they are the most important and the most respected and the most uh, uh, gifted people is to put them on a pedestal and to badge them as a pseudo savior. And no one wants to do that. Paul is making the point, no, no one was crucified except Christ alone. He was the one who was crucified for sinners. He was the one who paid the price for redemption. He's the one who's paid the penalty for our sins. He's the one who's brought about forgiveness and cleansing. No human leader does that. Jesus creates the unity through his cross and at the cross we all come to Christ the same way the ground is very level at the cross it doesn't matter as he'll go on to say later in chapter one it doesn't matter whether you were noble and wealthy and elite or whether you were poor and outcast and and uh and you know a a leper or something like that you know the cross is the ground at the cross is level and we come through Jesus alone not through Paul not through Peter not through Apollos And it's at the cross as well that we're enabled with gospel power to maintain the unity. So we've got to keep the cross of Christ in mind because when I sin against you, which will happen because this church is made up of sinners and I'm one of them. The gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ gives us how we deal with one another. I repent before God. I come and repent to you. And you extend forgiveness and when you sin against me you repent to God you come and repent to me and I extend forgiveness because the cross reminds us that mercy and forgiveness comes to us through Christ alone and then we turn around and we extend that same mercy and forgiveness to one another. So the pathway to unity is remembering the wholeness of Christ and fixing our eyes on him alone. But it's also remembering the cross of Christ. And then thirdly, the third rhetorical question is this. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? To take the name of someone is to align yourself and identify with that person. That's what happens when people get married. I take your name. I identify with you. We say I'm a Manchester United fan because I identify with that team. I'm a member of Grace Church because you identify with this church. I work for Lloyd's Bank and you identify with yourself, yourself with that organisation, whatever it might be. To take the name of someone is to identify them with that person. And Paul says, were you were you baptised in the name of Paul? He could have used Peter or Apollos. No. Baptised in the name of Christ. Yes. Yes. Because baptism is a public declaration of your allegiance to Jesus. It's a public testimony that you submit to him and to his lordship and to his authority in your life. You acknowledge yourself publicly as a follower of Jesus, that you are united to him in his life and death and resurrection. And no human being takes his place. No one can stand in that place as Lord and saviour. Paul even goes on in verses 14 to 16 to make it super clear that it doesn't even matter who baptizes you. Perhaps confronting the Corinthians exaggerated importance who actually dunked them in the water. Now, he never plays down the role of baptism. He does play down the role of who does it, but he never plays down the role of baptism because he knows it's not an empty ceremony. It indicates who is your Lord and Savior. And you get baptised in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. As he tells us in Matthew 28. Not in the name of Apollos or Paul or Peter or Matt or Nathan or whoever it might be. No, we get baptised in the name of Jesus. Marking out that we belong to him. That he is our only Lord. That he is our only saviour. And that then as a church we share a common identity with him alone. So the pathway to unity is... Remember the wholeness of Christ. Remember the crucifixion and the cross of Christ. Remember our identity in Christ. The pathway to unity is the gospel. The pathway to unity is Jesus. And when our eyes wander away from Jesus, the inevitable result is division. But when our eyes are fixed firmly on him and on his cross and on his gospel as we remember his wholeness and his fullness that he is our head and we are his body and we're joined to him and to one another as we remember his work for us on the cross that that produces humility that produces a humility that says we're all sinners saved by grace And we're all sinners saved by grace brought into God's family and we're all aligned with him as our Lord and our saviour through baptism into his name. As we remember these things, hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit, our perspective changes. We don't suffer from eye disease. And our hearts begin to change. And our relationships and our community life become increasingly transformed by the gospel. Tozer said it like this, A.W. Tozer, I've used this plenty of times before, but he gets the point. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they, to beca- were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. The pathway to unity is Jesus looking to him. Is any, is it, are you divided with anybody in this church is there anybody that you sit across the aisle from anything oh I hope I can make a quick exit before I have to talk to them this morning I hope they don't join our group if that's the case we should apply the gospel grace that's ours that forgives that judgment grace that allows me to go to them and seek forgiveness grace that unites us together in Christ Imagine if we were such a gospel-centered people pursuing gospel-empowered, gospel-transformed relationships. We will endure relationships. We we will enjoy enduring relationships. We will enjoy relationships that are rich in the fellowship of Jesus. We will strive side-by-side for the sake of the gospel and the mission in our lost and dying world. And we will help one another over the finish line. Paul says fix your eyes on jesus human leaders can't do it they don't cut the mustard but christ does and he's called you into fellowship with himself he was crucified he rose again you were baptized in his name and he's not divided so let's not be divided as his church let's pray